So welcome to this morning's talk. Everybody here who should be here? Often I say, all the important people are here. And then someone comes to the door. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Okay, I'll start now. And uh, we've had a lot of talks and we're coming close to the end of this retreat. But nevertheless, uh, people will, at this stage of the retreat, hardly notice much difference sometimes. It's only when you go home you can see the real difference of what a few days at a retreat center, relaxing, meditating, uh, having a good sneeze, <laughs> what it all does for you. Because <laughs> having good sneeze is called letting go. <laughs> but uh, you may notice that whatever happens on this retreat, you can always see a positive side to it. Even like last night it was windy and rainy, but getting up this morning and just walking out of my room to come here for the morning meeting, the clouds were incredible. It looked so beautiful up in the sky. So I just was a couple of minutes just staring at the patterns in the clouds this morning, really thick and, and a pattern I hadn't seen before. And there's so much beauty even when it was in storms. There's so much you can actually look at life. Sometimes you feel it's um, sad or it's depressing. For example, that sometimes you know you lose your job. You get the sack. What do you do? Instead of feeling sad, you say, yes, I've got some more free time now. <laughs> it's just like when COVID started. I remember so many people were complaining Oh, it's COVID, you know, we can't go to work, we can't do this, we can't do that. And I said, look, just a couple of weeks earlier, you were complaining you didn't have enough time in your life. Now you have all the time you need. You can't go to work. When people uh, had to go in quarantine because of COVID, I was so disappointed. I never got to go in quarantine. <laughs> it's just too healthy. But anyway, a few people, when they got in quarantine, they had a wonderful time. There were some of my monks, when they got into quarantine, seven days, and they came over here to China Grove. And they didn't have anything to do at all. And they had lots of really nice food, because that's what happens. When people actually bring you food, it's always more delicious than the food you take yourself. That's a weird... Phenomena. I've checked this out with other monks, it certainly happens with me. When I go to the tables of in Bodhinyana to choose my food, yeah, I try and choose you know, what's good for me. But then when other monks do it, and they put food in my bowl, they choose even better food than I could choose myself. I can never figure out why that is. But I think it may be because there may be just the same food as put in my bowl the fact that other people have spent a lot of care and kindness trying to find out what you want and putting it all in the right place. I think that accounts for a lot to make the food more delicious. So much so that I remember that when people say, Ajahn Brahm, why don't you eat more pure food? 
And I say, what is pure food? Pure food is whatever comes, whatever is given to you from a kind person's heart. That's what makes it pure in my mind. The kindness which people give to whatever they give you to eat. So what it's doing is you're looking at life would always see something positive in it. And this is part of what happens and what we develop, we allow to develop, when we start to grow in insight. Everything becomes an opportunity for wisdom and joy and happiness. Even when you are just washing up. I think it's a bit of a shame that we have an automatic dishwasher in the kitchen. It'd be much better if you can do it yourself. It reminds me of this. Here we go again. You know what's coming on when I say, remind me of this. There was this young man who went to visit his uncle in the countryside. His uncle lived, you no, know, very simply, he lived by himself. Didn't have many things, but then he gave him a nice dinner. And, you know, the dinner was a really delicious dinner, but the, the cutlery, the plates, they all had like a, a bit of like a film on them. And you know, he was wondering about the cleanliness of this. But anyway, because he trusted his, uh, his uncle. And he said, well, it's a bit late now, he might as well sleep here. So he slept there the night. And in the morning, uncle gave him a beautiful breakfast. But again, the breakfast was delicious, but the plates were a little bit sort of, it didn't look that clean. And so the kid, or the young man, the nephew, asked his uncle, he said, don't you wash the dishes? because they look a bit dirty. He said, these dishes are as, as hygienic as clean water can make them. Okay. And so he helped his uh, uncle clean up. And before he left, his uncle said, and don't forget to pat clean water before you go. That's my dog. <laughs> That's how clean the dishes. <laughs> What's the problem? You allow a dog to lick you, lick you on the hands and lick you all over. Why do you let the dog lick your plates as well? If you're going to catch something, you're going to catch it when the dog licks you all over the face. Isn't that the case? <laughs> but anyway, sometimes, one of the reasons why I tell jokes like that is because Whatever you have in this life, you can always find something enjoyable to see in it. That's what a lot of humour is about people who make mistakes, and it's mistakes which you can make as well. They're sort of human and they're sort of part of uh, our common heritage. And that's one also one of the reasons why just you can see so much beauty when the mind becomes very aware. And it's not, again, just toilet bowl stuff. It's just the clouds and the sun rises. This is a very lovely place to have a retreat centre. It's not sort of um, confined like in the uh, retreat centres over in South and Southeast Asia because they're usually in forests and the forests are very sort of um, like being in a prison sometimes. But here you've got a lot of air, a lot of wind. People say too much wind, but it's quite nice having a bit of wind. You walk outside in the morning, it wakes you up. And you don't get negative towards it. You see just all this, this retreat. Look, I'm keeping the bare shoulder. No jumpers. 
this is where we get the phrase in English to give a person the cold shoulder. <laughs> but no, it's, you know, after a while you just get used to it. You not just get used to it, it's not unpleasant. And the body tends to actually make a little bit more uh, metabolism so the body can become warmer. And so you don't need so many things. That's the main reason I don't like wearing so many, much clothes. Because those clothes that you have to wash, you have to change, you ha- it's a lot of burden having too many clothes. Of course, I'm not going to go to the extreme of having no clothes. <laughs> but, but having less is a sense of freedom. And that sense of freedom is something which I really uh, see the beauty in. Sometimes uh, what we have, what we think is comfortable, becomes like a burden for us, not a freedom. And that's one thing which, I did mention this in passing, but i say it in more depth now, that one of the parts of the training we have as uh, monks I don't know if nuns could ever do this, but maybe they could. But uh, this was being a monk by one. Yes, I think you can do this. Because the other day, it was only a couple of days ago, uh, a couple of the people who brought food to us, you know, at Bodhinyana Monastery, they were both women, and they were, uh, they did the sport of um, Thai kickboxing. You know Thai kickboxing? These were two women, and one of the women was uh, in the, for the championship of Australia, I think tonight. So she wanted a blessing first of all. So, you know, if if they can get some instructions from them, I say, they can go anywhere you like in Australia, be perfectly safe. If any man gives you any problems, whack whack whack, <laughs> and they'll be on the floor. <laughs> They're just really nice girls, you know, just had a bit of fun and offering diner to the monks, which was nice. And <laughs> so that idea of, you know, going on, uh, uh, they called it Tudong. In the Sri Lanka, they called it Charaka, where you just go wandering from place to place. The wonderful thing about that is everything you own, you take with you. You can't store anything in any place. And it's usually in time you've got your bowl and you've got, you know, your spare robe. And that's about it. You've got an umbrella and the umbrella is a, a mosquito and it goes around the umbrella. And you soon, because you walk everywhere, you don't have any money so you can't get on a bus or a car. Because you walk everywhere, you know, you soon, you think you've got it to the bare minimum when you start out. You soon learn how to get less and less and less and less. And as you get less and less and less, you get lighter and lighter. And you have this beautiful feeling of freedom. Freedom, you have no appointment, you don't have to get anywhere at any time. And whenever crossroad you come to, you can go straight on, you can go backwards, you left, right. Any place you wish to go, you can go. Because you've got nothing compelling you to be here or to be there. You're like totally free, you are like a bird. And it was those experiences uh, you know, gave me the, the insight that birds 
I've never seen a bird flying in the sky with a backpack. <laughs> Even if they migrate overseas, they never carry suitcases. They never have a little <laughs> uh, uh, pocket somewhere for just in case they need something, a few extra worms to eat on the journey. <laughs> they don't have any of that. They're kind of totally free. But why is it that us... You know, we have so much stuff and we don't really need it. Very often when I, I'm going, starting going traveling again now because COVID thing's over. When I used to go traveling, that sometimes, you know, I was a monk, so you didn't have many things to carry. You know, you see me going over to Jakarta, I just have my bag, I haven't got it this evening, my bag and ball and that's it. And many times, especially going to Western countries, you go through the immigration and the customs, and they always say to me, so, sir, where's your bags, your suitcases? So I don't have any, this is all I have. And they look at me, and they say, I'm a monk. Ah, yes, well done. Go through. And after a while, they get to know you. There's nothing much to search in a small bag and your bowl. And because of that, you, you go much lighter through life. It's a, it's a metaphor, but it also has the other meaning of you know, reality. When you don't own much, you don't have much to look after. And you always manage to survive pretty healthily. That's, you know, this afternoon, many of you will see my cave. That is where I live. I don't just set it up. I haven't been in there for a few days. I don't know what's in there right now, but it should be maybe a few spiders and I don't know what else. I think the monks look after and keep it clean. But it's small, and that's just a perfect dwelling for a monk. What do you need? Just a place to stretch, to lay down. There's a clock in there to wake me up if I need to come up to give a talk somewhere. A flashlight, water bottle, and a dehumidifier because in caves to get the um, everything nice and the right humidity otherwise you'll get mold in there and the mold is really bad for your health so I got a dehumidifier some time ago and that's about all there is in there it's so easy to clean I don't even clean it these days because I'm a senior monk so other people they just want to be the ones to clean it and you don't need very much. And it's just so freeing when you have very little. And even in here, yeah, you've got a nice uh, little hut there in the teacher's cottage. But all it is is a bed, a light, a shower, nothing much. Because you keep things really, really simple. I don't know why it is in our modern life we have such big houses. I went to somebody's house a few days ago to bless it. And how many rooms did it have in it? <laughs> Heaps of rooms. <laughs> I caught him when you're renting it out to students, that's fair enough. But nevertheless, I don't know why people have such big houses. Fortunately, that you do have like the small house movement these days. Because a lot of people can't afford to build big houses. It did remind me of that story of the woman in England who won a lottery, 
the British lottery, something like 42 million pounds or something. A lot of money. So she always wanted to have, instead of a small house to live in, with her husband and two kids, to have a nice mansion. So she bought this big mansion over in the county of Sussex, which is in a very posh um, county over in UK. A big mansion there and moved in there. And she sold it one year later at a loss and bought a small house, one of the terrace houses. They used to call them two ups, two downs. You know, two rooms downstairs, two rooms up, upstairs. Maybe a bit bigger than that, but a very small, simple house. And the person who found out about this wrote an article in the newspaper. How come, you know, you won the lottery and you, you know, managed to get so many millions, you bought a big house and then you sold it again? Why? And that's when she made a very good uh, insight that in that big house, that big mansion, that I was in one part of the house, my husband was in another wing of the house, my kids were somewhere else. We never saw each other. We all had our own little favorite parts of this big mansion. That's where we never crossed paths. It was tearing apart my family. Now I'm back in a small house I see my husband and my kids every day, many times. Sometimes they don't like it, me seeing them, but we see each other. And he said that closeness of family was something which she missed in the big mansion. And of course, when I read that, I did you know, recall, just I've only got one um, close relative left alive, and that's my brother. And you know, I became a monk, a renunciant. His profession was a banker. And I asked him, do you ever tell your, your boss at work you've got a brother <laughs> who's... who's uh, what did that um, Jyoti Pada say about Casper, the baldy? And a lot of times, the people don't really understand or respect what monks and nuns do. And I always, again, like to emphasize the story of... Venerable Sariputta. Sariputta was the wisest monk next to the Buddha, one of his chief disciples. But even Venerable Sariputta, just towards the end of his life, he went to visit his mother who was still alive. His mother lived in this big mansion. And when he went to see his mum, was his mother pleased to see her son, Sariputta? No. Sariputta was come with a lot of other monks, because he was famous by now, and said, will you come to visit me again and beg for food? Why didn't he get a proper job? And Sariputta was about 80 by this time. <laughs> and when I, when I read that, you know, that even his mother never respected Sariputta, and his own, his own son is respected by everybody else, not just by you know, so many other human beings, but then uh, Sariputta was about to die. And he kind of knew he was going to go soon, so he went to visit his mum. One last chance to try and uh, make his mum respect the Buddha's teachings, the Dhamma. But how could you do that? He was really smart and wise and logical, but that didn't work with some people. 
she was like a follower of the Mahabrahma. So what happened? That Sariputta got more and more sick. And when he was getting really close to dying, that's when all the heavenly beings, these supernatural beings, came to pay respects for one last time. And first they had what they call in Buddhist cosmology the earth devas, came to pay respect. And the mum saw these lights in the room. and said, know, who was that? Well, the earth devas came to pay respects. She thought it was a bit crazy. And then, what next came up? The four great kings. They came up to pay respects. Yeah? That was much brighter. And then, even brighter, that was Saka. Now the king, the lord of the heavenly realms of the, the 32 came to pay respects. And then the lights got brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And then this huge light was in Sariputta's bedroom, almost blinding. And then his mum said, and who was that? And I said, that was the, the, the heavenly being that you worship every day. That was Mahabrahma. Came to pay respects to your son. <laughs> <laughs> and that, the, the light was there, something was going on, so the mum never really doubted what her son said. He said, what have you been doing all these years as a monk? And that was the opportunity for Venerable Sariputta to teach his mum, to give her some faith, so she could become a stream winner. And not... Um, attaining stream winning but on the path to being a stream winner from faith and then he could die so if you have a relation if you've got like a husband you know doesn't really listen to you know, the benefits of meditation or the Dhamma of the Buddha then make sure that you get some really deep meditation that when you die you can bring all these heavenly beings in there and you convince your husband that there's something, <laughs> something in this but no, but when we went to this, um, uh, just living simply, that should really be more um, impressive than having heavenly beings come and worship you. But especially that you feel just the simplicity of that. How much do you need? This was one of those other stories which, it was a lovely way of expressing the meaning of life. And this was when I was uh, growing up. Now in the UK system, you do O-levels and then A-levels, and after A-levels you go to university, you do a BA, then you do an MA, and then you do a PhD, and then you do another certificate with a PhD. There's always another exam coming next. There's another qualification you can get. But then when I was you know, a student at school, you know, he started questioning this. We were encouraged to question in that British education system. So when I did my O-levels, what am I doing O-levels for? And they said, oh, it's good for you. And if you pass your O-levels, then you, you know, you'd be able to get a good job. You'd do well in life. And so I said, well, I prefer playing football in the street. I said, no, don't play soccer. As I mentioned I was in the school team. Don't play soccer. You know, do your O-level, study maths and physics and English and chemistry, and then you do well. Now I look at how much soccer stars earn. 
much more <laughs> than mathematics professors. So anyway, so I followed the advice of my parents and teachers. And I stopped playing soccer and instead worked hard and I passed my O-levels, did really well. And they told me that once you pass your O-levels, then you'll be sweet in life. Was I? No way. I did really well, now I do A-levels. And A-levels was, you know, the exams you usually do at 18. And I did mine at 16. And I was a smart kid. That's why I used to question a lot. And then when I did my A-levels, again, I did really well. And, well, first of all, you know, my, par- my parents, my father was uh, about to die soon. Yes, he did die before I did my A-levels. But then he would tell me, so was my teachers, don't waste time. I wasn't chasing a football anymore. I was chasing girls. <laughs> he said, don't go out to the parties and stuff. Stay at home, do your homework, do well, do your studies. If you pass your A-levels, then you'll be happy. That's what I thought again. I had a lot of belief to, you know, these people said they knew. And then I did that. And then what happens next? After A-levels? University. More exams. But I got into a good university. I mean, this is Cambridge, for goodness sake. Get a degree from Cambridge and then you'll be able to do anything in the whole world. You'll be so happy. That's what I thought. And I believed them. So I went up to Cambridge, and then that was a time that you know you were chasing all sorts of things. But at that time, I started to question. I started to see people who had got their degrees, and I asked, "Were they happy?" No, they weren't. When they graduated, then they had to get a job, and when you get a job, even with a degree, you start at the very bottom. Remember this uh, gentleman? The only job he could get after graduating was in a supermarket. This was a job, and the manager of the supermarket gave him a broom and told him to clean the, the supermarket sort of uh, aisles. And he said, But I can't do this. I've got a BA. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise. This is how you sweep. You take the end of the room. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> so, of course, then you see them as they go through their life, they start to do well in their job and they start to save a bit of money and they usually get a car or something and a little apartment and then they go looking for a partner in life. And once they find a partner, my goodness, that's more money. They've got a bigger house, bigger car, and they never have enough money. They always have to work really hard. And then when they, they get married, I can't believe how much it costs to get married these days. And sometimes people have to save for a year before they can... What do they spend it on? I'm just looking there, not, the family members aren't here. I did one marriage service over in Margaret River about a year ago, uh, or Bustleton, and just to impress uh, his wife-to-be, the groom arrived in a helicopter. It must cost a fortune. <laughs> but anyway, that's where we arrived. 
And he was there, and, that, and we were like, where's the groom? He's not here, he hasn't arrived. Has he sort of done a runner? Has he sort of got cold feet? And then the helicopter came in. <laughs> it was impressive. But how much did that cost? And then the poor people have to work so hard. And then you finally sort of get on top of things. You know, you get sort of the, the mortgage, the loans, almost paid off. You know what happens next? Then you have a kid. Now you've got 18 years of hard work before you can send your kid overseas. And the, the kid thinks, oh, I'm away from my mum now. No, it's not that you're away from your mum. Your mum's away from you. <laughs> and anyway, so what happens next is that people work even extra hard and they sacrifice so much as parents because then they think that, okay, that when my kid gets old and gets settled, you know, has their own family, then you can retire and take it easy. People think that way. You know, sometimes your kid goes to university, gets a job, you help them get their first job. Then afterwards you think, oh, I'm free now. No, you're not. They have their own kids and you're the free daycare centre. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but you work really hard. And then after a while, you think, okay, well, when I retire from work, then I can be happy. When you retire from work, are you happy? Now, by that time, you got so old, you got all these sicknesses, you got sort of kidneys or lungs going and other things going. And so a lot of times, people realize that you know, by the time they do retire, they're getting very frail and very sick. So that's why one of the reasons why you always find an amazing percentage of elderly people going to temples and churches and mosques. You know why they go there? Because they think, when I die, then I can be happy. <laughs> and there was something about that which I was always suspicious about. Why is it that when you do this, then you'll be happy? And I never saw anybody who was really happy. Always doing it and thinking that next week, once you pass this degree, once you manage to fix up that sedimentation tank project, then you'll be finished, Pim. You won't. We'll find something else for you afterwards, <laughs> for sure. And so, and so that where do you actually see that where can your happiness lie? We try to make it as simple as possible. And it's hard to be simple. Sometimes the governments, that scares them more than anything else. Simplicity. Because you can't control simplicity. And if you control it, and there's nothing to control, then no one can actually govern. So that's one of the reasons why I kind of respect people who go off-grid and live like in a caravan or in the back of their car. They have a bit more freedom. I remember those years as a monk, just walking from place to place, and no sort of uh, place I could call home. And it was, it was like being a homeless one. You found a nice place, you can put your mosquito net up, and uh, and sit there and stay there for the day. The next day, you'd always get some food somewhere in some village. It's a marvelous sense of freedom. With that sense of freedom you didn't have much to think about. 
I didn't know where I was going to be tomorrow. I didn't know how to get anywhere. So there was no compulsion you know, in my lifestyle. I had no bills to pay. I didn't have any money anyway. And you know, you can go to any sort of village and you'll get food the next morning. Sometimes you get more than food. I remember just meditating in this one place in the forest and this village lady saw me and she came back about uh, five minutes later with an open bottle of Pepsi, a piece of paper and a pencil. And I said, no. You know what it was? It was like a deal. You can have the Pepsi if you write some numbers down on a piece of paper. <laughs> Lottery numbers. But that's what they thought, you know, and the Pepsi was a bribe to get some numbers. <laughs> so it's a, it was wonderful. You can say no to that, even though you may be thirsting, find some water somewhere to drink. So this is actually how you can live a very peaceful, simple life by having little possessions. But are you worried about, you know, you might need something? Of course, because you had little possessions, every monk had to learn some basic um, herbal medicines over in Thailand. Little things which you can put off in case you cut yourself, which will actually stop the blood uh, flowing out. And little things like, even this is what the Buddha said, I don't want to gross anybody out, but like urine. I don't know why, but because the Buddha said it, and, now we used to use that. If there was a wound, you just rub the urine on it and it kind of healed it up. And even drinking it. It's not that bad. I remember as a young man, before I became a monk, drinking British beer. It tasted the same. But one of the nice things about that is just your perception. You know, they're seeing some things you're not supposed to drink. And why? It was salty and just, it was warm in the morning. So he didn't have any heater to make a cup of tea. <laughs> so, and then he did that for about three years without missing uh, one morning until I came over here in Australia. I was working really hard that first year. And in some mornings there was just not, no urine left. I was working too hard and sweating at night and you hadn't really got your, um, your lifestyle settled. So, but that kept you healthy, believe it or not. So these are sometimes, how much do you really need in life? Okay, I've got my Commonwealth Healthcare card. I never used it. <laughs> Having spent all that uh, time at the centre care office in Armadale, trying to prove who I am and realise I couldn't but she gave up anyway and gave me the card but all those things which you have it's amazing just how simple your life can be now one of the problems with Buddhism is all the books you, you have imagine just all of the, the this is there's not any old book on Buddhism these are the teachings of the Buddha the suttas have you seen them? The whole lot. It's a whole bookshelf. There's loads of them. Does that mean you have to read every one of those to be enlightened? Oh my goodness. And this is just the suttas, okay. Then you've got the commentaries in the Abhidhamma. 
You look at the Abidam, there's even a bigger shelf. And sometimes when I've, you know, I read a couple of the, um, the suttas when I was a lay person, and then looking at all the Abhidhamma, and I thought, crikey, is this what I've got to study if I became a monk? And that really put me off. Even though I had a good brain, all that study, is that what you have to do? And then you, you read about some of these monks in the time of the Buddha, like Chula Pandaka. He was one of my favorite monks because you know, he was academically stupid. He was, I don't know what they call them these days, uh, brain deprived or something, because you know, he could hardly learn any of the chanting. So he had a brother who was an arahat, and so his brother now tried to teach him some basic dumb, like Four Noble Truths or something, or how to meditate so he could actually make progress on the path. But this fellow, he just didn't know how to do that sort of stuff. So instead they gave him a little cloth. So take this cloth and just keep wiping it every day. That's a piece of uh, real cloth. And that's what he did. And this monk, he was, the cloth got dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and then started to get holes and it started to fade away. And he said from that, he got the insight of impermanence and whatever is beautiful, after a while, with use, will always get more dirty. That took away all his cravings and he became another enlightened being without learning hardly any Dhamma at all. And there was a story about a monk uh, over in Thailand who was very similar. I don't know his name, but I remember the story very clearly. This was a young boy. And when he, in these villages in northeast Thailand, they used to have four years of compulsory education. Grade one, two, three, and four. And that's all that Ajahn Chah did. He never finished primary school. Ajahn Chah just went to grade four, and that was it. And then, sometimes you talk with him, and I was a graduate from Cambridge. He was only four at primary school. And it soon became embarrassingly clear who was the smartest. <laughs> and that really shocked me. How come, when you have all this education, you have a person who's only got four years at school, and much, much, much smarter? Tell you how smart he was. Even when he was a kid, Ajahn Chah told me that when he was a kid in the village, they would, they would always play games. His favorite game was playing monks. You know how kids would play house? You know, you'd be the mummy, you'd be the daddy. And, but instead of actually playing house, they would play monks. And he'd always volunteer to be the monk. And he'd get some dirty old brown cloth wrap it around himself, he said, and he would sit on a rock in the village and he'd wait there while all his friends brought him something delicious to eat. <laughs> That's why he really fell in love <laughs> with <laughs> from being a monk, starting with a game of, of monks and lay people. <laughs> he said those things. You know, he's got a great sense of humour, Ajahn Chah. <laughs> but anyway, that... Uh, that sort of other ways of teaching. This other monk, 
whose name I could never remember. He was like a, he even did, didn't even finish grade one at primary school. You know, he had some learning difficulty. So after doing first year at grade one, the teacher said, well, I have to send you back to grade one for the second year. And all his friends in the village, you know, they progressed to grade two. He had to do grade one again. It must have been very embarrassing. But not as embarrassing as after the, <laughs> the second year, he had to do grade one again a third time. The teacher could not pass him. I don't know what he failed at. I mean, what can you fail at in grade one? <laughs> but anyway, he failed. And so three years in grade one, he didn't pass. So there's only one thing to do, they had to kick him out of school, education was not there for him. So what do you do with someone who is um, you know, that dumb? So the only thing they could do was to ordain him as a little novice monk in the village temple. So the, uh, the village head monk would try and teach him something. And the village head monk was really patient, very kind, and would try and teach him some, some chanting. Simple chanting, like Namo Tassa. It took him about a month to learn Namo. <laughs> and then, okay, now to Tassa. So he started learning Tassa. What was that first word again? <laughs> it was really, really what you'd call dumb. And so everybody has their limits sometimes. And so the head monk in the village said, I just can't do anything with him. So the only... Uh, choice for this monk, the only other place he could go to was the forest monasteries, where I come from. <laughs> but not all forest monks <laughs> are failures of grade one. But you can imagine the truth of this, that that monk was such a simple mind, he's a novice monk, you know, he couldn't learn the chanting, but You'd send him to watch his breathing. He could do it so easily. Hardly a wandering thought at all. Just watch your breath. He could do it straight away. So he soon got the jhanas and he became another enlightened monk. And you ask him, well, and how did you manage to do your chanting? Because all monks have to do chanting somewhere. He said it's simple. He said he just now, through his meditation, he recalled some of his previous lives. One of those previous lives was a monk. In that life, he could learn the chanting. So he just would contact his previous life. And then so he could chant through that. So he had perfect chanting. It's an interesting story. But the main part of that story, he had such a simple mind that he could meditate and become enlightened so quickly. So if any of you have any trouble becoming enlightened, please blame your school and your teachers for making you think. I remember that many times at school. You know, the teacher would say, now what do you think about that, Peter? Nothing. Stupid, go and stand in the corner. Why was a silent mind not recognized as the, the, the bright, wise, a uh, place where great wisdom comes from. We are forced to think. And people say that if you don't think, then you don't never find out. 
Thinking usually just repeats other people's mistakes. Being silent, that's where you see much more clearly. And silence is far more easy and freeing. Sometimes you trust in that silence. As a monk, you trust in it so much that if a person asks you a question, you sometimes you try and grab that moment of silence and then you can see an answer. There's this one uh, Sri Lankan lady who was studying medicine at uh, Melbourne University. I think it was Melbourne, not Monash. She came to see me a couple of times. She had this amazing meditation, which she learned as a kid while she was in Sri Lanka. And when she was a student in uh, medicine, that she would hardly go, she didn't go to any tutorials. She went to some lectures, but very few. And then when it came to the exams at the end of the year, she always got the honours, top marks. And people thought there's something weird going on here. You don't seem to do any work. You're getting all these top marks every year. She became like, what do they call it when you get the best mark in the whole university? Graduation. Ducks. Oh, ducks, okay. Why do they call it ducks? <laughs> you don't go quack quack. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, ducks, that's a leader, Latin, yeah. So, so she got the ducks award and the people, how can we do that? They checked, she wasn't cheating. You know, she told me that what she did was she would meditate and she would read the books, the medical books, just once. And she'd remember everything. And then when it came to the exams, she would just be really quiet, relaxed to the max. And then when she would actually uh, read the questions, she would always write the first answer which came into her head. She'd never change it, that first answer. And that's why she always got the top marks. And she never actually became a doctor, because she told me that uh, it was more important to her to teach that method of meditation to others. So she became a meditation teacher, but I lost contact with her many years ago. What was fascinating was just how well she did with hardly any effort. So if you keep coming here, then you'll be able to get all these top marks at university and no effort at all. <laughs> and your mother will be so proud of you. And you'll be happy. Because there's no effort, you can spend all the rest of the time doing the naughty things which teenagers usually do. <laughs> Just to get good marks. <laughs> but anyhow, anyhow, just the idea of like simplicity. And whenever there's any problem which I have to find a solution for, because you, know, you get given responsibility for all sorts of things, Sometimes I try and figure out just what responsibilities I have. I'll see if I can go through the list. Of course, over here in Western Australia, I am a spiritual, not dictator, director of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. I'm also a spiritual director of the Cambodian Buddhist Society of Western Australia. I'm also the, uh, it's a bit embarrassing to say this, but I'm, I'm the treasurer of the Australia Sangha Association. Australia Sangha Association, this is the monks and nuns for the whole of Australia. So someone has to be the treasurer. 
So I never touch any money, but you know, do it on the internet. It was hardly any work. So anyway, the treasurer of the Australian Sangha Association. What else am I? I am the, that's right, the spiritual advisor of the Buddhist Society of Victoria. The spiritual uh, patron of the Brahms Centre in Singapore. Of the, I don't know what my position is, but there's a, a Brahms Society in Colombo. Is it Brahms Society? What's it called? Ajahn Brahm Society, okay, in Colombo, that's in Sri Lanka. Uh, what else am I? I've got a few more. Sorry? In Indonesia? What am I in Indonesia, in the, the uh, Buddhist Fellowship? Am I anything? Nothing. I'm a nobody. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> there we go, all these sorts of uh, roles and duties and stuff. But that's how seriously I, I take these. <laughs> I don't know what I am. Someone said, do you want to be the spiritual director? Okay, put my name down. What do I have to do? Oh yeah, of course, with the Anukampa Bikini Project. That's uh, Venal Chandas. She's not well today. Uh, I am the, the chairperson of the, of the Anukampa Bikini Project Trust. Got lots of stuff to do. And I say, please don't make me <laughs> treasurer or president or anything, please, of the, of the Patachara Hermitage. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But anyway, take all this. And to me, it's been like a bit of fun. See what you can do to help, to serve, without taking it just as a burden. That's the most important thing, to try and be unburdened by all the stuff in this world. So yes, you may have all of these roles and all of these, especially when you go to, uh, we've got another magazine from the World, not World Fellowship of Buddhists, the Buddhist Summit in Japan. They've got this big center over in Japan, huge. And... Uh, spent billions on it. And so, uh, whenever you go over there, you've got to be very careful because the Japanese take these things seriously. So you, you have to get the right uh, way of addressing yourself. So I'm not supposed to call myself venerable anymore, but the most venerable or the very most venerable, I forget what, but because after so many years, you can't always call yourself venerable. You can't always call yourself most venerable. You have to call it very most venerable, or extremely most venerable, <laughs> or infinitely most venerable. <laughs> it's really crazy, just some of the, the names they give you. But anyway, that's their problem. So, and then when you come back to Australia, Australia's the best. Because you see Rocco came the other day doing the, hi, Brahm. <laughs> and I never told him, I said, excuse me, it's not Brahm, it's extremely most venerable, I don't know what <laughs> <laughs> When my mum was alive, she wouldn't call me <laughs> Ajahn Brahm or extremely most venerable. I'd say, Peter, come on. <laughs> I always gave her that permission, that there's one person in this world no, who could call me the name which she gave me, which was nice.
And of course, you've got, you know, I will be going to see my uh, brother soon. He's got two children, a girl and a boy. So they're my nephew and niece. And you know what they call me? Munkle, yeah. Munkle. <laughs> it is cute. So anyway, the, the idea of simplicity in your life, it can be very, you think you're getting somewhere if you've got a big house, you've got a big car, you've got a, 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 another house you can stay in. Look, look at me. How many houses I have? I've got my, um, I've got my town, what's it called, the townhouse in 18 Nansen Way, Nolamara. That's my townhouse. And I've got my country estate <laughs> <laughs> in Serpentine. <laughs> you look at it that way, <laughs> it's ridiculous. But you own nothing. And that's the nice thing about it. It means it's less responsibility. And you don't never measure yourself by how much you own. And that's a lot of times that people actually have a big house or they have a big car or they have you know, many houses. And it's just uh, advertising again their ego. Look at me. I've made it. I've got this big mansion. I've got this big car. I don't have a big car. I this is pretty. I think this will qualify as a mansion, would it? Yeah. Do you want to go? Yeah, okay, fair enough. And I've got my butlers <laughs> and maids. <laughs> so I've made it in life <laughs> without making it at all. So this is one of the reasons why when you, you learn how to be able to walk through Thailand owning absolutely nothing except literally what you have on your back, you know that you can be a bird flying through the sky carrying nothing on your back and you can live in beautiful places like Serpentine and Olomar and other places. Well, I mentioned to you, you can go and have dinner with Queen Elizabeth. It's weird. What's going on? It's because you don't have a self. When that identity disappears, you can go and meet so many different types of people, animals as well, respect them all, and just have no idea of who you're supposed to be. Who are you supposed to be? Who are you? Because after a while, whatever you think you are, eventually that vanishes disappears stage by stage. When you get old, you don't say, oh, I'll do this and get this and then I'll be happy. Be happy now. Even when you're very sick, again with those great diseases, the cancers and stuff. As you get older, you get many diseases. There was this guy who was told by his doctor, he had two diseases. He had cancer and he also had dementia. And he said, oh, well, at least I haven't got cancer. you get your diseases but ha do you ever get cancer do you ever have any diseases they're just visitors you don't own these things and just because you're sick does not mean you can't be happy really happy I think on the first day I told the great story of Ted he was from Lancashire and 
Chetala Street. And uh, he had the cancer because he was smoking. And then when he uh, went to the hospice, I told a story when I went to see him in the hospice and he told me the nurse had told him, so what do you want for dinner? It's a lovely story. I remember telling this at a, a doctor in Carignups. She ran a, uh, a nutrition place for cancer sufferers. And so when I told her this story, she almost threw me out. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, it's Ted, you know, and he was you know, in hospice, only had a few days to live. And the nurse asked him, what do you want for dinner? And he said, well, I I've got cholesterol, high cholesterol, I've got diabetes, I've got hardened arteries, I've got all sorts of problems with me. So there's all this food I can't eat. And she looked at him and said, the diabetes is not going to kill you. The hardened arteries aren't going to kill you. The cholesterol is not going to kill you. You're going to die of a cancer in a few days. You can eat whatever you want. How much freedom that is. He didn't have to worry about you know, the effects of the, the greasy, salty, sweet food which he was going to eat. He didn't have to worry about anything. So he ordered the greasiest, sweetest, saltiest foods which he could imagine, which he hadn't been allowed to eat for days, or for years, sorry. And he ate all of that. For once he ate what he liked, instead of what was good for him. And of course you know the story what happened. He went into remission. Surprised the doctors, he walked outside of that, out of that hospice on his own two feet, and had another six months. And I was with him when he actually died in that hospice. Because I remember his last words. You know his last words are always really important. And you know, he'd been in like a kind of a coma, you know, not speaking at all, struggling to breathe for such a long time. And you know, I saw him in the morning and it was getting you know, at about 11 o'clock. And so the people in his family said, we're going to get you something to eat, Ajahn Brahm. It's getting close to the midday. And the only thing they could get me to eat was like some fast food. I think it was like a chicken treat or something. You know, roast chicken and chips. And so it was one of the customs they used to have in the UK. If you had sort of any chips for yourself, they gave it to me obviously because I had to eat it quickly. But then they asked their dad, they said, do you want a chip, dad? And the dad hadn't spoken for hours. And he opened his mouth and said, yeah, I'll have a chip. <laughs> and that was his last words before he died. <laughs> <laughs> Honest, I was there, I saw that. I burst out laughing. <laughs> so, so anyway, just that's the simplicity of life. You're going to die anyway, so you might as well die with a chip in your mouth. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So those are some, some nice little stories about just how simplicity is good. You don't need much to have a happy life. And the idea of having no burdens on your life, imagine that, it's just so freeing. So when you come here and you've, you've got your little room, you don't need much more than that to live in. That's really comfortable, those little rooms. You've got your own little shower and, and en suite. So if you want a big house later on, just forget it. Have a small house. 
small as you can possibly get and it's easy to clean, comfortable and you don't have to worry about any thieves breaking in. No thieves have ever broken in to my cave. The door's open and all you guys go in there first. First of all, there's nothing there to steal. And anyway, there's that simplicity gives you a lack of things to worry about. And this is how to practice Buddhism when you get home. I didn't tell you about meditation when you get home, I'll come yesterday, but how to practice Buddhism. Be a person has a few things. It's much more comfortable. If you've got a family, you actually meet each other every day. You learn how to get on together, like I learned how to get on with my brother. Shared the same room for about 18, 19 years. So that way that, you know, you learn about harmony and peace and simplicity. You don't need much. And of course, uh, that means you don't have to spend much. Which of course means you can give more money to the nuns monastery. <laughs> I'm trying to put an ad in there for you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Very good. Okay, so now we have those interviews again. Imagine it's been eight days of asking questions and interviews, and there's still a full list. <laughs> Anyway, 